He began as an OMT skeptic, and after a fellowship year as a third-year medical student, saw its intrinsic value. Now he dedicates his career to treating the pediatric population with OMT. He treats kids with juvenile RA, IBS, sprained joints, headaches, and infants with plagiocephaly and torticollis. He is an advocate for youth outside the clinic, running a Christian ministry focused on youth coming from divorced and separated families. Dr. Pollard is a pediatrician through and through, a man on a mission to better the quality of life of the youth he serves. Our guest today went to Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine for medical school. He did his residency at MSU Sparrow Hospital in pediatrics, currently working on a number of research projects such as qualitative analysis of infant OMM. He has published numerous articles in the Journal of American Osteopathic Association. He was awarded the MSU Sparrow Teaching Award and has a particular interest and Christian ministry dedicated to youth. So with that, we welcome our guest, Dr. Chris Pollard. Thanks for, thanks for sharing your story this evening. Sure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate, yeah. uh, appreciate you asking. Yeah, absolutely. So to start out, Dr. Pollard, we want to get to know you. So if you could give us a brief summary about yourself, that'd be great. Oh, boy, that hard word brief. So <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, where do you want me to start? Um, um, maybe just... just some highlights about who you are, Okay, what you like, um, maybe one hobby outside of medicine. That'd be fantastic. Okay. Um, well, I guess it's relevant to where we may go in the discussion. So um, a lot of my maybe adult story uh, started when I was five, when my parents got divorced and that'll come back in a little bit uh, in terms of the ministry work that I do. Um, born and raised, uh, grew up in combination of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, and then later on Wheaton, Illinois, and went back down to live with my dad for high school, uh, college in Galveston, Texas, and then up to MSU Com for um, undergrad or uh, med school and a year of undergraduate fellowship, Sparrow for residency. And then I've been first at the Department of Peds at MSU and then uh, was invited to come over to the OMM department given my interest in uh, seeing kids with OMT. So that's kind of the, the professional journey. And then um, I... Uh, personally uh, met my wife in Galveston. Um, I always kind of say she was the shark biologist. I was the uh, dolphin biologist. So we <laughs> both have marine biology degrees and she went on to become a teacher and I became a pediatrician. So go figure that one out. <laughs> but we've always been connected and like we love uh, working with kids. So she is a teacher as a pediatrician so that's did how we actually, work did you actually study dolphin biology oh yeah yeah i'm a marine biologist I by undergrad okay oh, we, didn't, we didn't talk about that no. yeah i i um so there's uh, it's called the texas marine mammal stranding network and i worked with them as a outreach and we did um 
uh, dolphin necropsies. So I did um, probably more surgery on dolphins than I've ever done on people. And then had the distinct honor to help uh, one return to the sea after he had stranded himself alive. So, and then we um, found a couple of uh, baby dolphins that were rehabbed and sent to aquatic facilities in Florida and then um, had one or two die uh, under our Mm -hmm. care. We just couldn't save them. So, yeah, that was my undergrad. That's so interesting. I feel like any, any kid who has been to the ocean wants to become a marine biologist when they're when they become older that was that was definitely me it obviously didn't happen but yeah that's fascinating i'll have to talk to you about that a little bit more yeah that's where my mindset was too i wanted to be a, a dolphin veterinarian so okay and so what uh, what would be one hobby outside of medicine is it still is it related to the ocean or not uh, a little. Um, I mean, I always, I've loved the water. Um, but I, uh, you and I have talked, but, um, I do triathlons when, you know, COVID's not around, um, and train multi-sport. Um, so I, I do biking, swimming and running, um, recovering from my knee surgery. So I need to, um, get back into the pool, but, uh, no, I, that's kind of my sport hobby is triathlon. Yeah. That's fantastic. So what about Dr. Pollard, a, a book recommendation for us? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, probably the one that I'm in right now and I'm re- I'm going through it for the second time, but it's called uh, the good shepherd by Kenneth Bailey. He was a theologian that taught over in the middle East for, I think he's anywhere from 40 to 60 years. I think he and his family spent over there. So just tons of insight in um, kind of understanding um, a lot of the, the metaphor and how the Bible, when you look at it in its Middle Eastern context, um, comes alive with a lot of stuff that the, the traditional Western um, uh, translations have missed. So um, it's called The Good Shepherd with Kenneth Bailey has uh, been a particularly wonderful book to go through. Okay. And then finally, to finish off these questions about about you and getting to know you, what about a book or movie recommendation? Um, so I, I was drawn just past this past week uh, to watch I Can Only Imagine Again. Um, Mercy Me is probably one of my favorite bands. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bart Millard is their lead singer. And he has a, uh, just an amazing life story um, where his parents uh, separated and then he had um, a fairly abusive father that um, uh, eventually came to Christ and credited Bart's singing uh, with bringing him back to God <laughs> and got the band Mercy Me started with that, the first song, I Can Only Imagine. So oh, interesting. with my work with, trauma and that kind of thing. It's just, it's a phenomenal story. Um, true story at that, um, yeah. that, um, dramatized I'm sure a bit, but, uh, uh, he is who he is and it's a great, uh, great inspirational story. Yeah. And beautiful song. I, I really, I love that song. They, um, my cousin sang that song at my grandfather's funeral actually. 
Oh, what a great, what a great yeah. setting for that song. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty powerful. Well, Dr. Polar, are you ready to dive in to the topic? Let's dive. Okay. So first of all, how did you become interested in osteopathic medicine? So um, back at my college, I was, obviously we've talked about marine biology as my major, but I was always super interested in evolutionary biology. So I've always been in this space as a Christian who has never really feared science. And um, so evolution to me was how God did a lot of what we see in the world. And I had a professor who didn't shy away from that either. He just, he very much, um, when we started talking about evolutionary biology, he's like, I don't see a conflict here. And um, so I never felt that there was one. So, so anyway, um, I always was drawn to um, anatomy and people. And so I could see myself um, as, as I thought I was going to be a veterinarian and also just biology in general. I just was fascinated by how everything worked together. And every time we got into um, molecular biology, organic chemistry, I was always trying to fit everything together and how this worked in, in um, organisms and eventually people. And so I, um, I'd gone through a little depression um, that was, I found out later related to the divorce. But when I came out of it, when I was like reconnecting with the world, um, I realized that my first and true love was to be a person doctor. And so it just made sense to me to kind of approach medicine like evolutionary biology, like they're at the engine, the mechanism is just so fascinating um, that we should build medicine from that foundation. And then I started looking around at my options and found MSU's osteopathic medicine college. And as I read the description of osteopathic medicine, I was like, this is just applied anatomy, just exactly what I'm looking for. So I didn't grow up knowing anything about DOs. I'd never heard of them before. Um, but I could tell very quickly that it was going to be something that fit very much with the way I thought about the world. So you, I'm not trying to date you, Dr. Polod, but is this before the days of Google? Uh, this was, so if you want to date me, <laughs> I was in college when email was just being created. Okay. So that, um, actually does sound really scary right now um but uh no how did google... you happen upon i'm sorry go, go ahead. ahead no it's it, google was coming along not too long after that so it was okay yeah but how did you happen upon michigan state college of osteopathic medicine oh um because um my parents had actually moved to michigan and as i was trying to figure out where i could legitimately um, try to seek like in-state tuition. Um, at the time, it was either going to be Texas or it was going to be Michigan. So um, then I looked and I'm like, what the heck? And just so they did have websites at this point, you know, and, and um, that kind of thing. So I just looked around and, okay. and that's what MSU had up um, was a description of 
what AT still had put together as osteopathy. And that resonated with you. Why, what was it that made you make that leap from wanting to become a veterinarian and working with animals to, well, actually, I want to study the biology, but I want to work with people. Hmm. Why did you make that jump? Well, and no disrespect to any veterinarians that are listening to this, but um, in the mind of a very small child, um, after my parents' divorce, I had decided that I was not good enough to pursue human medicine. And so I don't know when I decided that, whether I was seven or eight. So again, uh, no disrespect. <laughs> um, <laughs> But that was just the crazy mind of the kid in me. And so what I realized is my mom was a nurse. So I was connected to human medicine my entire life. And I just rediscovered in college that this idea that I wanted to be a veterinarian was actually a secondary, um, secondary want, thinking that I could probably be more successful at that than I could if I wanted to be a human doctor. I see. Okay. And so then you fall in love with the mission statement of Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine. You get accepted. What was medical school like for you? Um, it was actually pretty good. Um, and I, I, get, I guess I missed a part of your question. Where did I first get into OMT. And that was while I was, um, I'm going to jump to that real quick and then head back to where sure. you wanted to go, is the um, students that were showing us around for TCOM uh, took us into the anatomy lab because I think a couple of us asked like, what is osteopathic manipulation? And so they showed us, I think it was like biomechanics of the sacrum. And I thought, wow, this is great. This is applied anatomy. So that's where I first got the bug for manipulation. And this is in undergrad. This is as I was um, interviewing for medical school. So I think oh, okay. at this point I had graduated. Um, I took a gap year, which I don't think they really called it a gap year at that point, but it was a year so that my wife could get her teaching certification. And I worked and um, did my med medical school interviewing at the time. Um, so that's when that happened. Okay. And then and, go ahead. And so you wanted a little closer look at an osteopathic medical school, what it was like. So you went to and checked out TCOM. Mm -hmm. Yep. I see. Yep. Okay. And then I interviewed at MSU and what struck me at the time was the way the students really supported one another. And um, it just, it felt like a home to me. So mm -hmm. that's why I, kind of got going there. And um, the dean at the time, um, oh, I can, oh, Al Jacobs, um, just felt kind of like a, you know, warm father figure uh, that knew an awful lot about OMT. And so he was, a, he worked as sports medicine and OMT. Um, so he just set the whole tone of the college as just one that was very welcoming to students. Um, so my wife and I moved up here um, and medical school was hard. You know, it was just it was a lot of studying, but I never felt like I was kind of losing ground and kind of connected with the students that were married. There was kind of an auxiliary 
um, uh, AOA auxiliary at the time. I, I think it still exists, but um, we, cause I wasn't kind of, I didn't go to the bars and do a lot of other stuff cause I went home at night to my wife. So sure. it was, um, so I couldn't do um, a lot of the social stuff that single folks do. Um, so it's nice to have a group of students that also um, were married and that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. we ended up doing some trips together. So socially that was great. And then we traveled on breaks with her family. And then I ended up going to Flint for my base hospital experience and then yeah. came back um, to do um, rotations. And that's where I decided to be a pediatrician. I had one of those like light bulb, you know, uh, light shone from above moments where it's like, yes, I want to do medicine. Yay. Um, now it was, what am I going to do? Uh, I think I want to do pediatrics. <laughs> Dr. Polak, can, yeah. can I back up just a little bit Yeah. To, to when you were talking about Al Jacobs um, being the dean at MSU Common and you seeing him as this father figure? Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, does... And I don't I have no idea what your relationship is with your father and you don't have to disclose, but I'm wondering, cause you, you talk, well, I know that that divorce when you were five has played a very influential in, in influential role in your life and in your ministry mm -hmm. and in different, different um, goals, life goals that you have for yourself. Mm -hmm. Did Al Jacobs being at father figure, was that, is that at all related, I guess, to, you haven't gone through that divorce experiencing the divorce at five. Um, I, you know, it's a, it's an interesting question to think about and I've not looked at it from that angle. Mm -hmm. Um, I think honestly it was just, it was kind of nice to have him there. Um, it wasn't, I, I can look at it now and see that, um, you know, looking back, he was, uh, now that I've been through, you know, two other deans have been at the school since I've been there. Um, he was kind of the, um, he just was a, a warm, inviting personality, at least when he was, you know, hanging out with the students. And I think from attending his funeral, um, he was just so well regarded by a lot of folks. So it yeah. was just kind of nice to have that as maybe a, a sign that this was the right place to be. I see. Um, but that's kind of where it was for me. I see. And then what was your experience day one of OMT class? Because now you are dedicating your career to treating a lot of babies with manipulation. Mm -hmm. So what was, what was that first day like? Did you fall in love with it or were you a little skeptical? I, I was always like, I, I was always skeptical of OMT. I mean, I had, I, I, I was on board with the whole idea and then it was about trying to see how things kind of really, um, happened. So I was interested in it. I learned it. I, you know, did a lot of, um, extra classwork too. Um, it was my class, uh, that started the, um, student clinic and I, it wasn't me as the organizer, but I was, um, seeing patients there very quickly. Uh, but it wasn't until I did the undergraduate fellowship where I got to see day in and day out uh, the attendings, seeing people. And you could only hear so many stories about 
you know, medicine failed me for five years, for 10 years, and then I start coming here and I'm better within, you know, three or four visits. You can only hear so many of those stories before you're like, oh, okay, there's something going on here. And so that's pretty much when I sealed the deal in my heart about doing um, osteopathic manipulation. So when you said you did the undergraduate fellowship, does that mean the medical school fellowship? Like after, yes. during third year of mm-hmm. medical school? Yes, this was, I, I think it's fallen um, generally out of favor because um, it's, it just makes a lot more sense to do the plus one afterwards where you go through residency and then you add an additional OMT year in. But mm-hmm. at the time to kind of um, build up um, skill sets and to help uh, people like you would have kind of a third year who didn't progress into the, um, the hospitals, stay around and do the teaching, learn like a resident learns, and then uh, saw patients in the OMM clinic and the, the peds, or sorry, the, the, um, the uh, student OMM clinic, and then work with the attendings and see how they worked with everything. So it was just an intensive year of osteopathic manipulation um, between our first, or between our um, first track and second track, um, so it was a third year. Now, some at the time, uh, some would essentially have you do uh, three months of teaching and then going into the hospital back to campus for three months of teaching. So they would spread it out for three years. So you'd have uh, five. But the way MSU was structured, it was just an extra year of um, undergraduate fellowship is what they called it. It sounds like like it was that year of fellowship in OMT that really sealed the conviction that OMT is, uh, is worthwhile, does have value. Why did you do the fellowship year if you weren't convinced of the value of OMT? Um, because uh, I was a skeptic. And okay. I... I think people, a lot of people use that word um, to kind of express why they don't believe in something. But to me, true skepticism is giving it as much of a chance as you can um, before you decide if it is or is not, you know, going to be part of your belief system. And so I was, I think, tempted enough, but I wasn't convinced. And I thought that that year would either convince me or not. And so, um, that's sort of how I was looking at it. Wow, that's a, that's a very honest approach. I mean, that's dedicating a whole year almost of trying to answer that question. Yeah. When you could have gone on to your clinical years. Wow. It's a very honest approach, Dr. Polad. Well, thanks. So, so then you're convinced you finished the third year where you do your OMT fellowship. You become convinced of the value of OMT what made you, when you went into your clinical years, into the hospital, why peds? Ah, so I had always had my heart and mind set on family medicine and delivering babies was part of it. And I think I was starting to be impacted by the kind of long DO history of kind of doing it all, including manipulation and and childbirth and then following people through their adult years. Um, and so the Flint hospital actually had a pretty 
um, active family medicine program in terms of delivering babies. So that was one of the, that was the draw there. Um, And as I was getting through my third year, I started doing some peds rotations and had kind of thought through like, where was I most happy? And I realized that I had spent my very first rotation with internal medicine and I enjoyed it. Uh, They had a good crew um, in, in Flint in the clinics but my very next rotation was a uh, family medicine rotation. And then the first patient was a dad who brought in like his two-year-old daughter and she had a viral infection and was just, he was really worried. And I, you know, you could tell that her ears were fine, but she was just having a fever. And I, something resonated in me with that particular case that I really enjoyed talking with the, the parent um, and interacting with the, the child and kind of reassuring them that everything is okay. And it wasn't, I didn't sign the check for peds at that point, but I never forgot that experience. And so when I was on peds rotations later on, I kind of realized that part of my personality is, um, kind of being an expert in something. And so family medicine in and of itself didn't quite fulfill that itch in my, my brain and heart, but being an expert in kids really had a lot of resonance to me. Um, and then you would see later on um, with the OMT, sort of having an OMT kid pediatric niche, again, further sort of um, appealed to the way that I like want to be professionally. So I, I have, again, I went from a niche sort of to another niche, um, but still kind of all together. I see. Okay. So how, so you, you obviously did a pediatric residency following fourth year of medical school. How long were you in a strictly pediatric practice without OMT or was OMT always a part of your pediatric life as an attending? So the the funny story is that the person who is most supportive of me doing osteopathic manipulation in my residency was a guy by the name of Peter Jennings, who is an MD pediatrician here at MSU for a while. And um, he just looked at me one time because I was a little nervous about doing manipulation. And he just looked at me and I remember him saying, Chris, you're not going to hurt anybody. Do it. And he, and I think it was that just, um, that moment of just kind of like believing in me and also kind of supporting me. I, I don't think he gave it a second thought, but given sort of the way that I was feeling, you know, socially and, you know, as a new person in training, you always want to make sure you've got somebody behind you. And he was that person. And I, I, you know, I had kept ties with the MSU folks in the department. So I could always email them questions and that kind of thing. But he was just extremely instrumental in giving me the, the confidence and support that I needed to do OMT. So even in my resident clinic, um, I would see patients and do OMT. 
And so that's why I'm kind of a, when anybody hears me teaching, I'm always trying to prepare them for at least at some level being comfortable doing OMT without someone that knows more than you. Hopefully that'll change in the next five to 10 years in the DO world. But um, oftentimes you're, you're not. And, you know, let's face it for people that are listening, we're not doing terribly horrible procedures on kids. This is using our hands um, in a anatomically precise massage fashion. Um, so the chance of harm is so low, um, mm-hmm. but it's also nice to have somebody there that you can kind of bounce ideas off of. So that's how things went for me. Um, how, and how, then, in, how influential was, you said Dr. Peter Jennings? Mm-hmm. How influential was him just saying, hey, Chris, you're not gonna hurt anybody go ahead and do this. How, how much, it sounds like that was a very influential statement that your attending made to you and allowed you to keep up your OMT skills throughout residency. Yeah, it was just, it was, I guess in a word, it was empowering. Yeah. Um, he just, you know, to have every so I think in this world, where we're kind of going crazy about, you know, leadership is bad and or people have been in leadership positions that haven't done well. Um, I guess in that moment, it really showed the value of, of good, positive leadership. And that is, I see you, I believe in you, and I have your back. And that was, that moment was just, it, it kind of, it, it gave me the lift that I needed um, to, to kind of move forward. Um, sure. Yeah. It seemed like a kind of a pivotal moment in, in your residency. Yeah. I um, think it, yeah. It, it, it certainly was. Yeah. You graduate from residency, you go out into practice as an attending now. Were you still using a lot of OMT? in your day-to-day pediatric practice? Yes. Um, they, they had, we had decided when I came on at MSU that one of the, the draws uh, to me, or I guess one of the values of me is doing pediatric OMT. So I pretty much had the first hour of any clinic reserved for my OMT patients. And so uh, for the seven years that I was doing uh, primary care, uh, I was also doing manipulation at the same time. And so I was able to keep my skills going in terms of, um, you know, learning from my patients. Uh, but at the same time, I was, I was kind of joked that I was, um, I was off the island. You know, survivor was a big thing <laughs> uh, when we were going through. So I always felt that I had... Um, uh, gotten off the island uh, and was on, on my own uh, and wasn't connected at the, in those years um, with a lot of the attendings. And Dr. Nicodemus and I have talked uh, to the residents in, in the past. It's like, that's not a bad thing um, because with a craft like osteopathic manipulation, um, having a time period where you are kind of on your own and it's just you and your patients um, as long as you've got the principles to fall back on, um, it, it is a time for growth um, and a time for um, just kind of seeing how things go and, and really putting the principles to the test. 
So I don't look at that as a bad, you know, set of seven years, but I also can look at once I rejoined the Department of Osteopathic Manipulation, being exposed to other people with the foundation that I had, I think was a, a huge um, boost uh, to my skills and um, knowledge and, and uh, the ability that I have to, to treat folks. And when you were kind of out on the island practicing OMT on your own, what, what was the response from the other pediatricians you were working with? I think generally um, good in terms of what I was doing and accomplishing and um, had, uh, you know, they had somebody to send somebody to, Um, you know, busy OMM clinics tend to have a long wait list. So uh, I was able to be someone that they could send to a little bit quicker. And then I just tend to gravitate towards complexity And so I would also get a lot of complex patients and that was okay. So at this, on on one hand, they had me um, to do OMT and then to see uh, complex cases. But then on the other hand, when we started looking at the time I was spending, um, it was sometimes difficult to uh, discuss differences between their practice style and mine. Uh, in other words, like, why am I seeing 24 patients in an afternoon and you're only seeing 18? Um, just because OMT takes longer, uh, I wasn't able to see, you know, two people in a, you know, a 20 minute time period as opposed to just one. So it was showing up in the, the data and um, that I was kind of a little. And that made discussions about um, kind of. Uh, clinical equity, if you will. Now we've got a new word to use. The, the equity uh, between the office, I think, was starting to cause a little bit of friction. I see. Is that the main reason why you went to doing OMT or you went back, I guess, to the OMT department at MSU and did pediatric OMT full time rather than splitting up between primary care and OMT? Um, I think... And this is this is more of a, a reflective of all of primary care at this point. <laughs> um, we were just kind of maybe leading leading it a little bit. Is the the practice that I was in versus my personality? Um, and many many primary care practices feel like this. So I just want to preface those that those statements. But I felt like I was working in a factory, and. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't talked about yet. I have a strong foundation in Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. And one of the things that he talks about is that with people fast is slow and slow is fast. And the faster you go in a primary care office, the slower you really go in effectiveness. And so I was feeling that in spades. So even though I had sort of made the, the decision personally to stick it out and to see where it would go, um, very shortly after I made that decision, um, Dr. Rowan called me and invited me uh, to come over to OMT to see kids there. And so that, but leaving primary care for me was a really big, hard decision. And 
it, what I, what it whittled down to was that I just, as much as I love the idea of seeing someone through like a big stage of life from infancy into young adulthood, um, I just didn't feel like as a factory worker, I was either happy or as effective as I could be. Um, so again, that, that idea that I could enhance my skills in one particular niche area and still serve a lot of people in kind of the way that I was designed or was being designed to do. Um, and given MSU and the Lansing population, um, it, I had enough people to see uh, that I could do good work um, in them. So it just eventually seemed like a natural transition for me, um, given how I was feeling and where I thought I needed to go. And so I think it was the right choice for my health. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very happy that you feel like you made the right decision. So why at MSU do you feel like it's not at the OMT clinic now? Why do you feel like it's not like a factory where you're just having to see so many patients? Cause I, I mean, I see how hard you work every day. You know, you're seeing patient after patient after patient. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it, it is, we do, I mean, any, any business entity has got to work a little bit like a machine. Um, but with the visit time that I have, um, which is, you know, 20 minutes for a follow-up and 40 minutes for a new patient, that gives me the time to talk with the families, um, give them a sense of what's going on, um, hear their concerns, read their body language, um, make sure there's time to answer questions um, and uh, feel that the visit is, um, I guess, complete. And so with, uh, I guess it, it's the timing uh, okay. that really gives me that sense. I'm, I'm doing as good a job as I can. And I, I found that kind of efficiency balance between the need to move um, and, and kind of see patients and generate income, but also uh, being able to do it in a manner that people feel um, respected, they feel um, heard, and they feel part of the process and that they don't have to be pressured to get everything out in three minutes or less. So. Right. And so what what pathology are you seeing and treating now in the OMT clinic with the pediatric population? Uh, so the, the big things that go along with infancy um, are, you know, reflux, GERD, um, uh, torticollis, plagiocephaly, colic, and then um, developmental issues that can be tied to an inefficient musculoskeletal system um, that kind of gets initiated whether utero in certain positioning, whether it's uh, during delivery or afterwards where they um, like they prefer to lay on one side of the head versus the other and then it becomes flat then um, and then a more insightful thing that's or an, an insightful concept that's come to me fairly recently as I've learned more and more with the fascial distortion model is I think infants in and of themselves are just in a ton of pain 
um, the ones that come see us that have the torticollis and even colic and that kind of thing is they're dealing with the type of pain that we feel when we get a crick in the neck and we wake up with a severely sore neck. I think they're dealing with that on a regular basis until we can get that um, smoothed out. Uh, So that's sort of the infant thing. Um, Awful lot of just pain in general, whether it's musculoskeletal pain, um, headaches, which I call musculoskeletal pain of the head. And then um, a lot of back pain with uh, adolescents. And then a smattering of other things I see. uh, um, I do some work in terms of integrative medicine, which is generally the uh, gut uh, microbiome work. Uh, so some inflammatory conditions, eczema, um, uh, different types of eosinophilic esophagitis, um, migraines have an inflammatory component. I have a couple of kids that do have, uh, rheumatoid, uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis that are managed well with integrative, uh, strategies, their rheumatologist, and then osteopathic manipulation. So, OMT can be supportive just as well as it can be curative. Um, so I see a lot of, of those types of cases and then just a couple of in-betweeners too. When you say integrative medicine, are you saying you're doing OMT in these patients with juvenile RA, OMT along with the rheumatology treatment for these patients? Is that what you mean by integrative medicine? Yeah, I mean, so for, for instance, um, this gut microbiome idea, uh, there's uh, kind of the 4R approach and um, where you kind of remove, um, you um, replace, uh, you restore and you re-inoculate. And <clears throat> so this is where we kind of try to figure out which foods are particularly uh, sense or which um, foods cause a particular sensitive inflammatory delayed type hypersensitivity reaction, which then sets up a bad environment for beneficial bacteria to grow, which then opens the floodgates to various food chemicals and proteins into the body that can then set up distal inflammatory reactions that then um, improve, increase or magnify symptoms. So if you work on those, um, those types of uh, knobs, if you will, you can kind of downregulate the body's general immune response. And then with manipulation, you can help with uh, the joint mobility issues that can come up. And then obviously you integrate with uh, rheumatologic biologics and that kind of thing um, with uh, uh, biologics. But I have one patient that sort of comes up that she's been tried on two different biological medications. So these are the monoclonal antibodies uh, for JRA. And they've been successful other than the fact that she's had um, uh, side effect profiles that don't mix. So they've had to stop them. And so while the rheumatologist is figuring out um, those medications and you can have anywhere from four to six months in between rheumatologist visits, um, they notice that monthly visits with me, making sure that I'm making uh, that I've that I'm loosening up all of her joints and treating them properly, that she can stay pretty functional uh, with just the OMT. So it's not curative um, in this case, but it's supportive. 
And so that's an, that's kind of a idea. And then other people have had different um, levels of inflammatory responses um, you know, related to their gut, um, those gut type issues. And so we work on those as well in, in various patients. I see. And when I was working with you, Dr. Pollard, you were treating a lot of babies with plagiocephaly. And my suspicion is that not a lot of maybe pediatricians or um, people in the medical field think about OMT for treatment of plagiocephaly. Um, we often think about the helmet. Mm-hmm. What, um, I don't know, what would you like to say about that? Oh, so I, I've, I've re- I recently in the last probably six, seven, eight months had a patient come to me uh, who had uh, been in a helmet and I think they were now about 11 months old and they didn't have the, the greatest outcome. So they, the parents were looking for more. And so it gave me an opportunity to, to really see um, uh, how these kids do that went through kind of standard therapy. And so when I assess kids, um, no matter where on the body they are, but in this case, it's the skull. Um, the simplest way that I can describe what I'm feeling and doing is I'm looking for elasticity and softness. And this kid's head who came out of the helmet was as hard as a rock. And so I usually, when I get kids referred to me, a lot of people do think about us in the Lansing area so we can treat them fully to get all of that hardness and elast- uh, and restore the elasticity to the bones, the cartilage, the membranes, and the soft tissue around the skull. And as you do that, you allow the head to take a much more natural shape on its own. And so um, then we'll just watch. And for my patients, if they're still in a zone of severity where they could benefit from the helmet, we'll put the helmet on and I'll manage them to make sure that they don't get harder. in terms of um, uh, too much compression, and then we'll let them out of, or we'll get them out of the helmets after that. And if you think about it, the the head takes shape from about zero to 18 months. And so most helmets are on from about maybe three to four months. Um, So again, you have curative versus supportive. Um, The sooner we can see babies uh, that have torticollis and plagiocephaly Um, the more chance we have of being curative uh, for both their torticollis and plagiocephaly. So many kids don't require the helmet who get OMT first. Um, But those that do, um, the OMT, I believe, works as a a supportive intervention um, to make the helmet both more effective and potentially spending less time in the helmet. Um, We did a, a retrospective study um, of kids that got OMT, physical therapy, OMT, and, and the helmeting. Uh, and we didn't see a huge data signal, um, but it's because we didn't capture that first six to eight weeks of treatment before the helmet went on. So, so that uh, we need to do it more prospectively in the future. Um, but that's at least through when I can feel a kid's head, feel how hard it is, and then be able to reestablish softness, elasticity, and then predict that this kid could do better, their torticollis goes away, 
um, that really tells us that there's um, some validity to the principles of OMT. It's just a matter of the, finding the right research methodology to help show what we're seeing in a lot of patients. How, what, is, what would you say your success rate is? That's one question. The second question is, once a parent realizes, oh, my child's head is misshaped, ideally, when would you like to see their child? I guess the, yeah, I mean, the, the easiest answer for that is um, uh, as soon as possible. So the success rate depends upon um, uh, several factors, and that is the age at, with, at which we see them first, um, and then the um, degree and severity of torticollis, and then also how the parents can interact with the treatment regimen at home if they need to do stretching and positioning. Um, and then there's a, I think there's a tissue X factor that some kids treat almost amazingly, miraculously, and other kids just take a long time. And I don't know if it's, if it links to hypermobility later on or some other type of um, tissue factor, but there's definitely um, some kids get better amazingly and others don't. So given all those factors, um, everybody gets better. Um, kids get better on their own. So then OMT gives them a nudge in the right direction. And then OMT plus a helmet gives a further nudge for those that need it. And I've recently been reading Viola Freiman, and I believe she basically saw the same thing. Uh, some kids were cured, other kids were supported, um, and then others needed a little bit more intervention. Can, can we put a percentage on the success rate of OMT versus OMT and helmet? Maybe that's an unfair question. I don't, I mean, if, if we're looking for empiric data, I, I really don't think good studies can tell us that I see. Um, because there are so many confounding factors. Sure. Um, it'd be easy to pick apart the data. So we're trying to kind of think through or, and we're not, when I say trying, it's, it's sort of on the, the list of things for the, the new musculoskeletal research center to do. Um, we're trying to think through methodologies that would help us. And for instance, um, taking very high resolution pictures at different stages um, and then comparing them to kids that happened to not go through the OMT pipeline. But then if we do really show success, then we're not going to, it's not going to be ethical to have a non OMT treatment group for very long. You know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. sure. So there's several different confounding factors when it comes to the research, but I've not yeah. seen hard um, like percentages because again, it's kind of like, what is the percentage of um, people predicting the weather? <laughs> like it's going <laughs> to rain, it's going to rain at six o'clock on Friday. And then that percentage doesn't come, but it rains at two o'clock in the morning on Friday. So if you get down to the hour of prediction, you know, it gets a little messy, but if sure. you st stick with a day, it becomes a little bit more tight. Sure, sure. So Dr. Polod, you are a pediatrician through and through outside of your medical practice, you have a, a Christian ministry dedicated to youth 
who have experienced or are currently experiencing divorce or separation in their family. Can you talk to us a little bit about why this is such an important, um, I guess, ministry for you? Sure. Um, so as I, as I alluded to, I, I had gone through a depression when I was in my um, like early, early 20s. And I wouldn't really fully understand it for probably another 15 to 20 years. But the long and the short of it is uh, when my parents divorced at when I was at when I was five years old, um, I had no idea of the process that I needed to go through to truly heal from that. And most kids don't. So what had happened was I just moved forward. I just moved on. And there was this big shock in my family of the divorce. Um, and it just sort of hung with me. But to everybody, you know, my mom's like, I thought you were fine, you know, and I went through high school and was fine. But what triggered it was when my, my wife and I started, we were dating in college and we started at, talking about our future after college. And I, uh, we were totally happy one week and then we had that conversation and then in a short amount of time, I wanted out of the relationship. I just, I wanted to be done. I was freaking out and I went into a depression. Uh, I, thankfully I found a really insightful therapist pretty quickly. And within like our first half hour, she's like, are you a child of divorce? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and she's like, I've got a couple of books that you need to read. And that's what started me on uh, down the path of kind of first realizing that I could go 15 years into the future and then be impacted by this divorce that happened years ago. And then uh, what about all the other people that have gone through divorce too, with, you know, half marriages ending in divorce and the kids that are involved and that kind of thing. So, so anyway, that was sort of the, the genesis of it. And then we changed churches uh, several years ago, and I knew that I wanted to start a ministry um, with divorced kids. And it just so happened that our church had a ministry, but they were the person who was leading it for kids was actually marrying the person leading the adult divorce care group, and they needed someone to uh, lead it. So. I decided uh, I stepped in there, um, obviously with God's timing, and um, kind of fell in love with the idea. The program that we're using um, had some, uh, I, I just, it didn't quite fully feel right uh, to what we needed. And I slowly started to develop my own uh, curriculum and called it the Little Pieces Club. Uh, the idea being that when our hearts break, God can still make masterpieces out of the little pieces of our broken heart. Right. And so when COVID hit, I started really getting into um, making sure the curriculum was uh, really firm with PowerPoints and videos and that kind of thing. And then I started reading more about um, the science of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs um, and divorce, I think, honestly, divorce was one of the first, uh, if you look back, Judith Wallerstein 
was one of the first ACE researchers because what she described in her work as kids' response to divorce is very much uh, echoed in a lot of the work on childhood uh, adverse childhood experiences and PTSD. Um, as you and I have talked about, the body keeps the scorebook. Um, but that pattern of first, you know, feeling responsible for the earthquake event, whether it's abuse, neglect, divorce, or whatever, and then being emotionally uh, um, blunted throughout the rest of your childhood and adolescence. And then when it comes to the point in your life where you um, meet an adult, or meet an adult um, who you're thinking about a relationship with, um, kind of completes the double tap of the childhood trauma. Because if you're emotionally um, immature, trying to set down an adult relationship, it becomes very difficult and then a predictor for future uh, struggles in marriage. So as a pediatrician, I see intervening in that um, as an, an extremely powerfully effective kind of butterfly effect into your adult life, life where um, you'll struggle less with uh, marriage type relationships. And so Little Pieces Club has um, a child small group, a teen small group, and then I provide mentoring for parents who are pre-divorce going through it or after making sure they can reconnect with their kids. And then most recently, and probably most profoundly, as I was going through adverse childhood experience recovery research, um, it became extremely clear to me that you can look at the lens of, or you can look at the Bible through the lens of trauma and then connect with God on the fact that he has been trying to teach us how to deal with, prevent, and recover from all types of trauma for thousands of years. And it's particularly, um, it, it comes out particularly well when you take the Middle Eastern approach to looking at the Bible. Um, because again, we've Westernized things to the point where I think it's easy to miss the, the recovery from trauma piece um, that was basically just um, in the day-to-day -day lives of Middle Easterners 2000 years ago and, and even before, uh, life is trauma. And so dealing with the, the questions of suffering around God, um, we don't shy away from in the Little Pieces Club. Um, as, as a matter of fact, it's actually a central question. So I kind of look back and in our day and age when people kind of use the, I can't believe in a God that allows this amount of suffering question. Um, we're not the first people in 2000 years that have thought that since Jesus was on the planet. <laughs> That's for sure. So, so how, how much yeah. does, does your ministry, um, your Christian ministry with these youth, the little pieces club, it must influence your, your day-to-day -day medical practice and vice versa. Does it? Yeah, I mean, and it's it's funny because if you think about osteopathic manipulation, our hands are healing the effects essentially of some type of trauma, whether it's the way kids develop inside, whether it's um, the trauma of delivery or falls or um, concussions or something like that. So 
I kind of find myself awash in various levels of, of trauma. Um, and so uh, kids, uh, particularly they're having behavioral problems that come, uh, I get a couple of ADHD referrals. And so uh, the PTSD work that Vanderkolk did and the body keeps the score connects very much to the ADHD cases. Um, so you can begin to see this continuum of disease based on the amount of trauma that kids have experienced, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, um, or even mental. And so it, it does kind of become something that runs together in my day-to-day -day approach. And I just had a mom tell me that she's dealing with uh, um, the death of her sister, uh, suicide death of her sister from six to 10 years ago. And she's like, I still have moments that um, that just take my breath away. And she's like, are you telling me that I haven't fully grieved yet if that's happening? And I looked at her and I said, yeah, that's, that's giving you a sense that there's still some pockets of grief uh, that you need to go through. And then I handed her my, my prototype grief workbook um, that, uh, that I created. And so we'll have more conversations about that, I'm sure in the future. So, you know, so what I, I've applied is um, these ideas of grief and the fact that the Christian religion in particular um, is all about grieving various things um, and particularly the fact that we are not God, <laughs> we yes. don't control suffering, but we're grieving the fact that we don't control the universe. And God has been telling us that if we don't do that well, we end up trying to do things on our own, which then just muddies the water even further. So it, it becomes sort of this clarion call through so much of scripture is how do we grieve well and stop the bad effects of not grieving well. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Pollard, do you think that hands-on manipulation um, with a youth who has had these traumatic experience, whatever they may be, can that be healing in some way? Oh, sure. And um, how so would you say it is? Well, beyond the, um, beyond the aspect of the physical trauma, and as you and I both know, you know, you can touch a person in a way that will re, that will re-trigger uh, some type of physical experience. Um, that's very clear with the PTSD research. So in the way that we can undo the physical aspect of that trauma imprint um, is uh, tremendously important in and of itself. Um, and then manipulation in and of its uh, uh, just on its own, and we could just talk about massage or body work, um, allowing someone else to touch you uh, in a way that is somewhat therapeutic, uh, can provide a connection, uh, uh, an avenue of connection um, uh, to recover from that PTSD trauma. And indeed, I have a couple of uh, adolescents that they are experiencing what's called amplified musculoskeletal pain syndrome. And in two of them, uh, I have very clear indications that they went through um, emotionally and spiritually traumatizing events. And then one was particularly emotionally traumatic um, as she uh, went through um, 
a toxic sort of dance experience with, with her instructor. So um, healing both the peripheral and central aspects of that uh, amplified pain experience comes with both a hands-on and then even a, a interpersonal approach that, that you can take um, while you're treating them. Mm-hmm. And, and personal question, Dr. Polad, you know, you talked about going through divorce in your own family when you were five years old and that being, I mean, that is an adverse childhood experience. How do you think that manifested in, in, let's say your, your body, like how was that experience painful for you? I guess on many levels, not just your body, but, and, and if you're, if you want to share, if you don't, I completely understand as well. Oh, no. Um, so I think, uh, I, well, um, to answer the question, I have been diagnosed with eosinophilic esophagitis and Crohn's disease. And no one else in my family has got those diagnoses per se. Um, and, but my dad has had a history of food allergies. My mom has a history of food sensitivities. Both of them grew up uh, in um, a, one in an emotionally toxic environment, my dad in a physically abusive environment. Um, and then my sister in the was in kind of the epicenter of the issues between my mom and dad. Um, so we've had a lot of toxicity, but I'm pretty certain that um, combination of my sensitivity plus that toxicity um, probably set the clock going pretty much faster in terms of how um, my eosinophilic esophagitis and Crohn's disease manifested. Now I'll tell you that since I have worked on those 4R approach, the gut stuff, um, cleaning up my diet, making sure I get my physical activity, um, I don't think you could really tell that I have anything but kind of a mild case of eczema at this point. So um, healing, going through the stress reduction of the, all the steps of grief that need to happen um, as you deal with toxicity and the aftermath of, of kid trauma um, is definitely been part of the healing journey that I've had. I see. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that and making sure. yourself vulnerable and, and, and sharing that with us. So we're yeah. coming up on an hour. I know you have a few books, Dr. Pollard, and you have a podcast coming up. Do you want to just talk about that? Maybe give a little plug about those, the book and sure. the podcast? Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to do that. Um, so I've got a parent, a, a book to help parents uh, connect with their children uh, after um, divorce uh, because parents, let's face it, are the, are the most important therapists that kids could have. And so I take them through the steps that I've sort of lived through um, with my kind of journey through biblical context and um, also echoes of Stephen Covey's highly effective habits. Um, so I, I've kind of put together uh, a journey, uh, um, a book that kind of walks us through what I call the private Christian journey and the public Christian journey. So it's, um, it 
really expands upon the idea of us being a tree of life uh, where we have roots underneath the soil that no one else can see, but then a trunk and branches and flowers above the surface that are seen by many. And so there's multiple skills or even just concepts to know that help us in our solitude and in our community. So that's um, the book called Welcome to the Little Pieces Club. And hopefully that'll be out in the next year. And then um, I'm super excited that my children's book is um, about done with the artist. But this was a project that my kids, uh, the kids that went through the Little Pieces Club did where I said, okay, guys, if we, we get to write a, a book and it's everything that you would like to say to your parents, but you can't. Um, so we're gonna have a main character who's going through a divorce and um, he, uh, you know, will watch what he goes through and you guys get to um, like write each scene. And so they chose clouds and clouds are fun to play with when it comes to like emotional states. And they named him Kevin uh, because we looked at all the, the letters of the names of the kids going through it at the time. And we could come up with the name Kevin. And <laughs> the book is going to be called Do Clouds Get Divorced Too? <laughs> and I, it's a, a walk with a daughter and her father. Um, and they decide to look up in the sky and see clouds. And I set it in Sleeping Bear Dunes um, Park. And I've got uh, some really neat images from there. And she starts just rattling off in her imagination, the story about Kevin and the father is there to kind of like, just, you know, really supportively pull out the story. And then every page has suggestions to parents on how they can engage with their kids in positive ways um, to make sure that their, their childhood after the divorce is as ideal as possible. And so I just, every page that comes back from the illustrators, just um, getting me super excited about that. And then the podcast is I've got um, several episodes that aren't hosted yet, um, but it's basically a parent. Uh, it's the Little Pieces Club parent podcast where I go through how I built every lesson um, and every video that I go through. So it's kind of a behind the scenes talk about the science of um, how divorce impacts kids, uh, PTSD research, and different ways that they can support their kids and sort of the why behind why I put it in the lessons. Because all these lessons are up on YouTube. And I have a, a YouTube channel, which is Little Pieces Club Ministries. And um, so it, it sort of talks about um, the kind of the background of uh, and the why and some of the biblical context behind the lessons that I put together. So that's Great. what I have so far. And if someone wants to get in contact with you, Dr. Pollard, how can they do that? I would just email me. Um, it's uh, uh, well uh, for the ministry contact, I would use uh, Chris.Polod at gmail.com. Um, and then Polod uh, is P P O H L. Okay, perfect. And then was there another email that you wanted to Oh, make? I can I can give you, I don't know if in the podcast notes you'd have it, but I can send you a QR code that would link okay. people into the um, the Facebook group for Little Pieces Club, which has a lot of our content and that kind of stuff. 
Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pollard, for your time, being so generous with your time. Thank you for the, the incredible work you do with the pediatric population in the OMT clinic and with your ministry of the Little Pieces Club. Quite inspiring. Well, thanks. And I never hear people say or very infrequently say, you're welcome. So you're welcome. But I also <laughs> want to follow that up with, thank you for giving me some time and space with you. This has been a really fun, um, really nice time. So thank you, Ben. Yeah, I very much enjoyed the conversation. Well, thanks again, Dr. Pollard. You have a great weekend. You guys too. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye. It's okay to be a skeptic as long as you take the honest approach and give what you're skeptical about its weight in questions and research. This is the honest and brave example of Dr. Pollard and what has shaped his career as a pediatric OMT physician. He is a man of faith and an advocate for youth. Hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please leave a review and click on the link to ask any questions you may have to Dr. Pollard or myself. See you all in the next episode.